Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the State of Distress Dead Edition of the FIC Focus Podcast Series where we focus, as ever, on the happenings in U.S. stressed and distressed credit and bankruptcy. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me today, today would be April 6th, is Bloomberg Intelligence's very own senior distressed credit analyst, Phil Brendel, and Eliza Ronald-Tannon of Bloomberg News. Welcome out of the cold uh, to both of you. Happy almost spring uh, kind of a wild ride that we saw in the first quarter, and, and we're going to get right into it. You know, pretty wild end to uh, a lot of volatility throughout the first quarter, one in which high yield overall lost about 5%. Uh, lower rated paper, however, generally did better, uh, which is kind of unusual when the market declines, and that's largely because a lot of losses were rates related. Um, you know, and if you weren't in Russia, you probably did okay. So, Phil, maybe uh, talk us through what happened in the landscape of stress distressed uh, over the course of March. I know. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a interesting uh, quarter because performance for distressed wasn't that great, but the, the supply of distressed is very limited, uh, which is you know generally symptomatic of a strong you know high yield credit market. Um, but, you know, to some extent, it, it's been uh, credit has deteriorated a little bit. You know, spreads have widened, but not enough to, like, increase my population. So distress ratio, again, was 2.1% at the end of March. Uh, nothing new. It's been right around there since June of 2021. Um, and uh, performance during the quarter was not good. Uh, it was down each month in uh, the first quarter, which is an anomaly in itself, and I'll get into a little bit more of what that might mean. Um, and then it was down 3.3% in the month uh, of March. So uh, a negative quarter, how many times does that even happen, uh, you know, in the distressed index? Uh, you know, and, we're, and j- again, we're talking about the U.S. distressed index published by ICE. Um, you know, these are just the bonds with uh, credit spreads above 1,000 basis points. So, over the past 20 years, it's happened five times where we've had uh, a negative performance in the quarter. And of those five, four out of those five, uh, the rest of the year wasn't good either. Um, 2020 was actually the exception uh, where, you, if you recall, that March was pretty horrific. Uh, I think the Gosh, March... What happened in 2020? Gosh, <laughs> it's, it feels like there was some event maybe... Can't quite uh, bring it back to mind. Uh, yeah, the market forgot about it very quickly. Exactly, uh, it, it ripped artificially due to the unprecedented uh, COVID stimulus. But if we look at the other dates, it's 2015. The rest of the year, we were down 37 and a half percent. 2008, we were down 38 and a half percent. 2005, we were down nine and a half percent for the balance of the year, and 2002 down 22.3%. So what we have here is this is traditionally a seasonally strong quarter. And for whatever reasons, you know, and I, I focus on the technicals here because it's not necessarily, you know, going to coincide with my fundamental views. But for whatever reason, um, the balance, you know, we had a negative quarter 
and that's usually a, a, a portent of a poor rest of the year. Well, I, I love the use of the word portent there, but um, yeah, I grabbed it from my headline. <laughs> well, but, I mean, I guess one of the things I guess, that in, and you sort of alluded to it, right? Because the supply remains so low, and I guess one of the things that makes you know maybe this year a little bit different, and I'd love to bring your sort of fundamental view in addition to sort of the technical view, which it sounds like you're looking for more losses here. Um, but, you know, given the fact that it seems like a lot of the losses certainly through the performing side of credit have been driven more by rates as opposed to, you know, excess returns, although those have been loss contributing in a lot of instances as well, but not nearly to the degree as rates, you know, it's given we've been in a 40 year up until recently sort of bull market in rates, is it sort of uh, an appropriate comparison to say, okay, well, you know, the distressed market experienced losses in the first half when it was driven not so much, well, I guess there's some bifurcation there, but not so much uh, exclusively by the names that are comprising that index as you had the rates impact, or is it in fact the fact that we just got so few of them that it's really just the dirt of the dirt? that's left in these things that's delivering those returns. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty stagnant roster. A lot of the same names we, we see kind of recur. And I, I think what you're basically seeing, you know, and I, I think a lot of this is systemic, you know, that funds, credit funds might not be doing well and they, they just aren't looking to put new money into even further distressed when you're, they're seeing widening. So you could even maybe see some people saying, you know what, I'm actually getting more juice now in the high-yield market. Maybe I'm going to rotate out of this little distress bucket that I have and, and put money. Um, so it definitely could be, you know, sort of related in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, that there are other things maybe presenting a little spread now as opposed to just distressed. It, 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 it was pretty lonely there for us. For, for <laughs> Well, speaking of maybe uh, creative ways and tries to capture returns, you know, one of the places where we did see some pretty steep declines, certainly in the latest month, uh, you know, was in Cora, uh, which some people may know or remember as West Air, perhaps not fondly. And there's definitely been some stuff in the news happening uh, on that front. And there I'd like to bring in Eliza, because I know this is a name you've been sort of uh, looking at. There's some recent events around there. So so what's our latest within Cora? Right. Well, this week, Cora pulled off one of these legendary, uh, aggressive asset transfer maneuvers that we have come to look out for in the distressed debt market. Uh, not dissimilar to the kind of more famous example of J. Crew, which, of course, resulted in a lot of litigation and really stands out for that. But, you know, it all comes down to a private equity-owned company um, finding loopholes in their debt documents to... Uh, that allow it to transfer assets outside of the reach of certain creditors who may already have those assets uh, acting as part of the collateral for their debt and just, just swoop it right out from under them and use it then to back new debt that the company needs to raise in order to get itself out from uh, out of a sticky situation. So what Infora did um, was, you know, strip the covenants of, for one, creditor group um, by getting certain members of certain of their lenders to agree to allow them to strip those. And then all what it all comes down to is there are certain lenders who won, others lost, and the company wins with 
liquidity situation in the company then, but it's certainly a birth default in the um, near term. There was a hundred million payment due in May that it's going to allow them to make, and it has also though pissed off a lot of hedge funds who are on the losing end of this whole scenario. Well, and that's not. I mean, I guess uh, you know, Phil, you've been around in the market a little bit, so you've definitely seen <laughs> some of these dynamics, and perhaps even been involved. Uh, in some of them yourselves, I mean, it's, you know, in a, in a world, particularly right now, right, where you've got pretty slim pickings, I guess it's not entirely surprising, but but I guess given the sum of the participants involved here, it's, it's you know, contention's sort of uh, part of the DNA here, is it not? Well, you know, it goes through cycles. I mean, generally speaking, all these hedge funds are economic animals. And, you know, what's how do I make the most money? Um, now, some of them will look outside of credit and realize that there's a lot of relationships with other hedge funds that they have with the sell side, financial advisors and lawyers. And so how they conduct themselves and how they conduct their business uh, one, you have your relationships with all of those parties and, and in restructurings, we, you know, everyone sees each other, uh, pretty regularly. And then on the other side, you also have your reputation that like once these deals get announced and you're out there, um, you know, it's like, okay, this is how this person conducts business. And, you know, in, in Cora's case, we know platinum equity, um, platinum equity tends to be very aggressive in their capital structures. Um, you know, I recall the bankruptcy of Chasex, uh, in which, uh, shortly after it did the operating company notes, they did a pick Holtco note deal where they took a complete dividend out of the company. And that I, it's, it might've made one coupon, but I think that it actually might, may have not even made one coupon and uh, that shortly filed for bankruptcy thereafter. And, you know, what was interesting about that case was at first it looked like there might be some pursuit of, you know, the equity here uh, for fraudulent transfers and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, that was really sidelined. And w- one of the interesting things was they, they, they went to the same people who did the Opco deal that for the Pick-Holco deal. So they were going to own the company, whether it was through their Opco notes or through the Pick-Holco notes. And so it was just, I think, a little bit more embarrassing that the Pick-Holco note went from par to zero in in short order. So what's interesting there is that there was no real pursuit. Uh, the company exited bankruptcy. Uh, the bondholders ended up owning it, but... You do have, uh, you know, th- there's different kinds of equity sponsors. Some will, you know, they know that they're the equity and, you know, when it's no clear way out, they will throw the keys across the table and say, here you go, creditors. And others will fight for the to the bitter, bitter end. And I think to, you know, Eliza, what she's describing there is you're seeing more and more these uh, private equity firms and, you know, it could be subordinated note holders as well, um, they're fighting to the bitter end and nothing's off the table. But I mean, so for the losers here, right? So, and I think, uh, you know, Eliza, your article mentioned to BlackRock, JP Morgan, um, you know, do they have any real recourse? I mean, it would seem sort of like, you know, they're disappointed that maybe they didn't get a, a seat at the table for the negotiations, but, you know, really, what can you do? Right. And, 
what you can do really is just be that more aggressive predator. Because it's interesting what Bill is saying about different types of sponsors really seems to apply to lenders as well. You will notice that in this story about Incora, one of the main players, Pimco, which it was Silver Point Pimco who split off onto their own group to kind of make a side negotiation with the company about providing this new capital. And Pimco, just the same week, did the same thing um, in the case of the healthcare company Envision. So it was also, you know, you'll see the same names pop up as the lenders and the hedge funds were willing to step aside and get really aggressive themselves without fear of alienating their peers. And of course, the likes of Pimco has reason to not be afraid. But in terms of the recourse of the losers, um, besides just pledging to uh, be the Pimco of the situation next time, um, they, you know, there's been a lot of discussion this week actually about whether they do have any legal recourse. People are very upset and myth about how this went down and they are certainly talking, you know, not necessarily those involved, but everyone is talking about whether or not there's any legal violation here. Um, of course, the company maintains that there wasn't. And as we all know, with State of Covenant these days, it's not hard to imagine that those loopholes were really very real that were exploited. So, um, One of these uh, Covenant things of which you speak, I know, I know. I've, not, uh, I've not seen any. I've never heard of them until And, you know, I think that it, it's also worth saying, though, that they're not in a bad situation quite yet. It's really put for, like, BlackRock, you know, worse off for any future restructuring, which is pretty relevant given the how operations are going for Incora. But as of now, they don't really have any loss except to perhaps their pride. Wow. All right. Well, I mean, so Incora is not the only story out there, right? I mean, there's obviously some other interesting ones, and I know, Eliza, you've got a a couple that uh, certainly make me chuckle, which I guess uh, probably isn't the hardest thing to do. But that's what great. other uh, events do we see sort of in the landscape out there right now that's that's topical? I know uh, uh, one of my favorites from the, the days of your Toys R Us, I think, is back in the news somehow. Right. Uh, so what, what else do we got going on? Well, I just got some late-breaking news that the Toys R Us hearing that I'm um, keeping an eye on has been delayed from May, but... You know, nevertheless, what we're looking at is uh, the ongoing litigation against directors, the, again, private equity firm, the sponsors, directors in uh, the company, the, <laughs> both people from the sponsor and from, you know, the company itself were all on the board of directors at the time of the bankruptcy. And so what the trustee that is doing them alleges uh, is that those directors knew and have even admitted that they knew in depositions that are part of gathering facts for this lawsuit, that they knew uh, in the weeks and months before the bankruptcy that the financing deals they were making were not actually sustainable or manageable for the company. So they you know, went on taking, taking additional debt to kind of kick the can down the road and, and keep themselves out of the hot seat for the time. So then these were like the, the true Taj stuff where they push stuff into international entities and those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. And, um, and even, and you know, as you know, the, the capital structure of that company was one of the most complicated and incomprehensible that we have. Seen <laughs> so, 
Oh, yeah. You, you had the prop goes. You had a lot of stuff going on there. I think the interesting thing for, for me was when that whole thing went down is, you know, at the point in time where they were, right, it was it was an unusual time to file because I think it was late in the year, like in October, November type of filing, which for a retailer, you know, uh, you know, unless you really need access to, you know, basically fund your inventory is, is sort of unusual. But they had kind of done it to themselves, if I recall, right, because they... There was rumors, I think, that they had floated the idea that because they were trying to get better terms from creditors to renegotiate and restructure the balance sheet a little bit. And so they floated the idea that, you know, they could bring in advisors and all this other stuff. And then it became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, and, you know, what was even more relevant to this um, litigation is decisions during the bankruptcy, as a matter of fact. And decisions about the dip financing, which ended up being really the nail in the coffin of the company. They, of course, when they first filed, were planning to turn around and stay in business, and that were widely, it was, it was hard to imagine Toys R Us going away, but the terms of and the nature of the enormous bankruptcy debt that they approved um, really sank the company because the covenants were too strict. They were impossible to meet. And, and one of the big claims, or some of the big claims about in this litigation is are about... Um, the directors having known that those bankruptcy terms were not uh, sustainable for the company, but still approving them and, you know, agreeing with the lenders that, you know, signing off on loans that were very profitable for the lenders of them. Well, I mean, I think the saddest thing is I'm not exactly sure whatever happened to the Ferris wheel that was in the Times Square store. So, uh, but maybe that'll resurface at some point. What else do we got? I know uh, one of the other ones, and, and I think this is a good opportunity to sort of uh, <laughs> what's, you know bring up sort of a, what's the wildest thing you've seen. I think AMC uh, has been probably one of the more entertaining names as they've dealt with their stress to stress post COVID. Uh, you know, most recently they were they were kind of back in the news again. What are they up to now? Yeah, AMC continues to entertain, so it's really fulfilling its uh, company mission in that sense, but. The company has seemed to become a lot about a lot more than just theaters and entertainment because what we're seeing and what we saw last week was that it is making full investments in, in companies in entirely different sectors. So it's becoming something of an investment firm or a conglomerate. Um, last week, the company Hycroft Mining, which is a gold miner, <laughs> literal gold miner, um, which was in trouble because of a series of operational issues, including just technological stuff. It doesn't have a mind that is technologically capable of processing the ore that it has effectively. So <laughs> that would sound like a problem if you're a miner. But, uh... <laughs> you know, we all have problems. Um, they need to build a new mine, and they needed the financing. And then they got the gift, uh, a big gift in the form of some random guy on Twitter um, talking up as sort of a penny stock to get behind and then next thing you knew it was all over Reddit and the attention had pushed up the company's stock by you know 80% or something and then Jason Mudrick who is a hedge fund manager who's a major owner of iCrop jumped on that opportunity called his old friend Adam Aaron he knew and that's the CEO of AMC Mudrick knew well from his previous experience helping AMC to avoid bankruptcy, and that's the business Mudrick is in, the distress that 
restructuring civic hedge firm hedge fund and so he asked Adam Aaron to um, help him convince Highcroft to follow in the AMC model and take advantage of this pop in the stock, which uh, you know, in my words at least was based on pure technicals and not anything legitimate to, but nevertheless to jump on that um, to turn it into something actually useful to the company and issue shares of the market that would be able to take into account that pop in the stock and you know justify issuing them at a higher valuation or at a higher price and raise a lot of cheap equity. Yeah, sort of like a, almost like a reverse Nokia, right? <laughs> You're moving from a sort of a communications technology-oriented field uh, into sort of a, in more of an industrial field, in this case mining, versus Nokia, which I think started in PayPal group for uh, becoming a technology cell phone, all that sort of stuff. Kind of a crazy ride. Phil, you know, what's I, I'm sure you've seen a few of these in terms of, you know, companies that do some peculiar things and like anything kind of jumped to mind in terms of what's the craziest stuff you've seen? It's, it's kind of funny because you, you have this company, you hear the humor in your voice. Yeah, no it, 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 company. Well, distress companies generally their flexibility wanes as they go into towards bankruptcy. Cause all of a sudden, you know, if you have some out, you know, wild idea that, you know, this is a really good place to invest, but we're not sure if we're going to succeed in it, you know, venture sort of capital mindset. Um, often lenders are like, no, stick to your knitting and, you know, generate as much cash flow as you can so that you can pay us down. Um, so so you don't get the, the wild changes like that. Um, but, you know, I, I followed AMC from a distance. Um, it's it's pretty wild that they're now entering mining. Um, it, it does, you know, it, it, it does. I know that they had some issues with their shareholders saying, "No, we don't want you to issue any more shares." You know, they're they're trying to avoid further dilution. But you know, they they've actually delevered quite a bit too. So it's it's kind of an interesting story from that perspective. You, you just have to make sure you have the right people if you're going to go into these businesses. But, you know, when you talk about, like, a vast change in sort of mindset and direction, you know, you, you know, AOL comes to mind when, you know, Time Warner bought that. Uh, that, that, was, that was certainly a wild change. I, I remember when IDARC was, you know, that was the Verizon's old Yellow Pages business, and that was spun off. Verizon's exceptional at spinning off assets that eventually file for bankruptcy. That seems to be a great skill they have. Um, but but that was, IDARC in particular, people were like, oh, wouldn't Google be interested in this kind of information because you have all this local content? And it's like, so IDARC thought maybe we could have, you know, our web presence and more often than not, you just see these things not really work. Um, and so, you know, stick to your knitting, do it well, and really, you know, I, I think that's probably the, the best strategy. Um, it's kind of interesting because another company that's taken advantage of the meme stock is Excella Technologies that, you know, I, I, I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. But they Let's talk about them now. You, you <laughs> okay. brought them up. Nobody's okay. hanging on the hook. Let's just... Dive right in. Excella Technologies. So, so who are they? What do they do? So, Excella Technologies. Well, I guess we know who they are, but yeah. Who they do. Well, so they they are a uh, they their business is really um, 
optimizing the workflow and processes for uh, large enterprises through digital solutions. And in particular, the industries where their customers reside, they have about 4,000 customers. Um, it's governments with a lot of paperwork, financial services, a lot of paperwork, healthcare, a lot of paperwork, and insurance companies, a lot of paperwork. And what they try and do is really create digitized so solutions and all the different processes and decision points, you know, kind of incorporate them and try and streamline that. Um, they have 17,000 people. So it's a very labor intensive business. 81% of it is in the U.S. Um, now, what makes Excel interesting? So, so, so I, I guess I'm confused. So, uh -huh. it's digitizing is just basically like scanning thing. Like, why do you why do you need seventeen thousand people? To, 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 to uh, no, it's it, 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 they talk about their seven layers of the different business and how businesses interact. But you know, you have you you have your receivables, you have uh, ERP that you're integrating. You're, you you have you know your accounts receivable, your accounts payable, and just like all of these processes uh, and and developing um, streamlining it as much as possible digitally as opposed to you know creating a lot of paper but yeah but yes a lot of their customers are sending them these in just these customers have further customers that are sending them a lot of paper <laughs> and that needs to get digitized get that get what's important out of all that paper um you know in front of the people who can make the smart decisions so that's the, that's the business in a nutshell it's it's uh what i you know I'm a distressed guy, so I kind of look at all these things and, you know, they're all, at some point, they're black boxes and I, I take a look at the big characteristics. And what you have here is um, COVID wasn't good for them. Uh, the, the work from home dynamic, that's creating new challenges and opportunities for the company. Um, but bottom line is revenue declined. Uh, you have a capital structure uh that's in a tough place. They had $1.6 billion of debt and their EBITDA is about 173 million. And that's got a lot of interesting ad backs that, you know, are for restructuring changes that, you know, they say are one time, but tend to have happened for the last four years. Um, and, and so they also had near term maturities. And now this is a, what I'm describing is at the end of 2020, and so the, the the bonds were trading distressed. They had uh, they had um, first lien bonds, and what they did uh, was they um, um, they they really were quite creative and aggressive in accessing the financial markets. They 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 were they benefited from guess what a meme stock rally, uh, you know. <laughs> And they just kept pummeling the equity. They did a lot of at-the-market um, sale programs, and they raised $407 million uh, through equity. Uh, now, they also issued $338 million of their 380 million shares in 2021. So they massively diluted themselves, which, you know, that's, you know, for, for, for someone who owned, you know, the company and, at the end of 2020, you own only 16% of the company now where you used to own 100% of the company. So massive. So, so, what, so did they solve the balance sheet issues or, or what's the, I mean, obviously if you're talking about them, I assume the, the $407 million didn't work. 
Right. So, so, so they also did a debt exchange where they, you know, one of our favorites, Eliza, you know, they, they told you, we're going to strip your bond, you know, your, your, your liens and, you know, you're going to be an unsecured creditor at the back of the line. Um, you have Sounds to roll. Like where we started our conversation yeah. today. Yeah. So, so, so they, they rolled them into a, but they rolled them at par into eleven and a half percent notes from a ten percent coupon. But the, what they got there, which is significant, is they pushed out the maturity. It's no longer two thousand twenty three. It's out to two thousand twenty six, I believe. Um, and, and and so all of these capital structure, you know, benefiting moves. Uh, they, you know, the, the equity they raised that went to pay interest because cash flow wasn't all that great. And uh, and then it also went to pay down some debt as well. So they actually reduced their leverage. Um, I'd, I'd say about two hundred million at the end of two thousand twenty-one. So, so so help me understand because I guess like when you when you walk through that tale, what I hear is is okay. Well, you got a business where it, I mean, I guess it kind of reminds me of the old outsourcers like an EDS or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. But um, but it sounds to me that like they're servicing businesses where the the paper intensity probably doesn't go away. Maybe it's changed a little bit with the work from home thing. So maybe you've got a slight erosion on the supply side or the demand side, depending on how you want to think of it. Uh, from a client standpoint, to me, I guess I, I would intuitively think that the employment base is relatively low cost. So that 17,000 employee thing is maybe where you're getting a lot of margin compression given you know, inflation and where wages have been going and stuff like that. Like, what's the real pain point for these guys that sort of brought them to this point? I think it's the top line that they're, they, they, you know, maintaining these customers and and maintaining the rates for those customers. Um, You know, this is the kind of business where, you know, you put in something and then you're, you're competing, you know, like call it every two to four years, you, you, you're, you're back on the spot. They're putting it up for bidding. Um, and the incumbent does have an edge, but at the same time, you have to you have to hit the right price points. Um, and and so, but rising labor wages isn't helping. And you know what I've looked at is the the revenue definitely declined, and the decline during the pandemic was significant. Where a lot of people, perhaps because they have so much work from home, their work processes changed, and with that, maybe they. To developed a whole new dynamic and found new solutions. And so, um, you know, look, the, the, the companies, they're also moving more into the mid-market from the large enterprises to the mid-market and are hopeful, um, you know, for a variety of their products that they have there. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, I, I've, I've seen situations like this and, you know, it's just with such a large company, it's tough to turn that tide and you know in such a way where their liquidity um you know they the company actually also the new exchange notes they actually sold those in the high 50s or low 60s to generate cash for themselves so they actually issued debt at a 30 percent yield themselves um in the first quarter so you're seeing steps that for liquidity that really are you know uh, are you know, kind of desperate moves. And, and so, uh, you know, as I look at it, I think you need a quick turnaround. You need to see genuine like cash flow generation. Um, you know, there is a lot of size here and there are opportunities. Um, 
but if they don't get that, um, one of the things I'm thinking they they really need to ponder the decision to pay their first long coupon on an eleven and a half percent note that comes in July, and so um, you know I think that, that's uh, I I think they can probably manage to get it out. The question is, is that really what they want to do? And you know. With this eleven and a half billion dollar, or no, this roughly, it's it's a little over a billion dollars of eleven and a half percent notes. Um, do you really want to be taking your liquidity and paying it out the door to? Uh, yeah, bond I mean, that's a, that's a little bit more than just pure option value. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Eliza, is this a name that sort of comes across your radar at all, or? I know it has. It has for long enough that it has sort of <laughs> seemed to fade into the background, but it, it definitely pops up all the time as on one of the places where uh, one of the names is having their bonds move around in price. So, you know, Movers, a company that has bonds uh, going up or down in a dramatic way. So, um, I mean, it's been a pretty long saga, but um, what do you, I mean, what do you think it will actually do? Uh, so when that one payment is due, uh, how well, is well, it? We can't say explicitly. No, <laughs> it sounds I, like he's not hopeful. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, I, I look. I, I think. I think ultimately, um, if the company isn't turning around as quickly as it would like, um, you know, I. I think what you have is a serious discussion with the holders of the eleven and a half percent notes. That is the big class here and with just a a broad brush you know restructuring you could you could equitize those and and that would solve a lot of the company's problems um i will throw out there this is not the company that you want to take through a bankruptcy and i think that one of the reasons why it stays out is because they everyone all the stakeholders realize that um, you know, they're, they're because just in the sense that they have a contracted business and, and their clients that, that would obviously leave a lot of, a lot of their clients sort of the lurch, right? 17,000 people supporting, you know, all these different customers. I mean, you know, the, 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 for all those reasons, this is not a company that you really want to take through a, um, you know, a chapter 11 and all the things that that would entail. So, you know, I, I am sure that they will be pursuing any, and all uh, out-of-court solutions before they uh, would have to actually pull the trigger. And I, 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 I'd be remiss if I didn't say the company has in recent, like, you know, weeks, uh, you know, they, they, they expanded their uh, B. Riley facility uh, uh, to the, t- I think, about $50 million. They replaced their CEO. So there is, there, there it's a, con- it, it seems like this is a company that's in constant flux and, uh, but you know, at some point, the the rubber meets the road. It's certainly, uh, you know, the, the the fact of a company being the type you don't want to have to push into bankruptcy or at least be um, held accountable for pushing bankruptcy. Certainly, that keeps companies out of court for a long time in the past. It's also it sort of failed to do so. Right? What are some? I mean, I'm thinking PG&E <laughs> is obviously a great example. That was pretty unavoidable, but that seems for a little while they're like, you know, they, the kind of company that everyone was going to do all they could to keep out of court. 
It happens. Right. There's, they, they, you know, a lot of companies figure it out, and they they they, they can live with a certain amount of bonds outstanding. Um, Revlon did a lot of machinations, cleaned up their balance sheet, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm I'm still covering them, so I would say I'd argue that they're still certainly distressed. They have bonds below fifty. Um, these the 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 out of court song and dance can go on for quite some time, and a lot of these, uh, you know, one of the things you, distress is a long game, and uh, a lot of times these exchanges, debt exchanges, they'll be just a first step, and and a lot of times the people making them and the and making that first step know that they're the first step that like you know step five is we file for bankruptcy, but we're just doing step one. Um, I don't think that's the case here. I think this company really is hoping that they can turn it around in a rapid way. Um, you know, and I guess we'll see. Well, with, with that, uh, with that, uh, penultimate insight, we are at step five of this particular podcast. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to thank everybody, uh, for certainly taking the time to listen in once again. Uh, and of course, uh, many thanks to Eliza for for greeting us today and, and joining us, and uh, Phil as always. So, with that, uh, we wish everybody another happy and prosperous month, and we'll catch up to everybody in May. Take care. Bye.